Hello and welcome to the JLA cast, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ and I'm the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Trolltooth Wars. Uh, Okay, and as loath as I am to repeat myself, um, but for the benefit of the listeners, I was just telling PJ how tired I am. (laughs) And I don't think there's any better uh, uh, kind of evidence for that than the fact that I was all set to record before realising I didn't have a microphone or a podcast machine in front of me. Those are, I would say, key elements when you're recording a podcast. Yeah, yeah. And and you'd think I'd have learnt that by now, but clearly my brain is just kind of curling like an old sandwich up in my skull right now. Um, But yeah, in in case, listener, there was any doubt, uh, I think it's 100% confirmed now that PJ is the one bringing the professionalism to the show. I'm a professional. Uh, I'm also on my possibly fifth coffee of the day, I think. I'm on my third, but I've got a lovely new mug to have my coffee in. Ooh, very nice. It's got yeah. Godzilla on it. Um, now, PJ, um, given that my brain is clearly not functioning very well today, uh, I think it's important that I bring this up before I just flat out forget about it. I had an interesting occurrence a couple of weeks ago. Ooh, hello. After we recorded our last episode. Okay. Now, do you remember, and I, I will not blame you if, you if you don't, but on a previous episode, I talked about how uh, when, I was, when I was but a lad, a friend of mine went on holiday to America, mm-hmm. and he brought me back a random selection of Marvel just monthlies, just floppies, because like, there's only like three of them or something like that. Yeah, Yeah, that rings a bell. And among them were a... Fantastic Four kind of milestone issue. Can't remember what it was. It may have been like issue 200 or 300 or something like that. Thinking back, probably a John Byrne joint. I mean, look, much as we knock John Byrne on this podcast, his Fantastic Four run was pretty great. Oh, oh, yeah. No, no. He wasn't always, you know, like this. He wasn't Um, always our mortal enemy. (laughs) (laughs) But he, um, yeah, it was the Fantastic Four battling... Paybock the Power Scroll? Oh, yeah. Does that ring a bell? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm. And another one of the comics uh, my friend gave me was issue one of a Hawkeye uh, limited edition miniseries. Ah, uh, yes. That's come up a few times, I think, that issue. <laughs> yeah. Now, here's the thing. Uh, after we recorded our last episode, I went to... Uh, well, not immediately after, but in the, in the days following, mm. I went to the tip, or if you are an international listener, uh, the dump. Um, I don't know. It's where it's where you throw the things you don't want anymore. Yeah, I had a ton of stuff to get rid of, and uh, Lucy, my wife. I swear, there's a point to this. Uh, Lucy, my wife, had a big stack of old SFX magazines that she wanted me to get rid of. Oh God, yes, I uh, yeah, I remember those. I used to collect that. <laughs> So there was this big, kind of like the dimensions of a shipping container, this big recycling (laughs) box, Mm. if you call it that, with tons of like flaps and hatches along the side where you could shove things in. Mm. So I walk up to this this shipping container thing, 
uh, with this big stack of magazines and I open this hatch on the side and I kind of chuck them in. And obviously I, I kind of lean into this big yeah. recycling thing because I want, to, I want to get them in. And I realise that it's full to about chest height with recycled magazines and um, and bits of paper and stuff. Mm. And right below me, literally at eye level, is a pile of comics. Oh. So picture the scene. I am half in, half out of a big recycling metal box. Uh, <laughs> some might say at a low point. I might say at a weird cosmic high point because literally the comic that is under my nose in perfect well i don't want to say perfect condition but it's not like soiled or anything like that is issue two of a hawkeye miniseries oh my god from 1993 literally the part two to a story i i haven't seen or read in over 20 years <laughs> and i'm holding it right now and it yeah, it, and and also PJ, a ton of Superman comics. Oh, that you you rescued them. You rescued the pile of comics. I uh, I didn't rescue the whole pile. Right. I was kind of tempted, but then I thought to myself, it doesn't look good <laughs> for me if I emerge from this bin because literally, like my entire torso is in it. It doesn't look good if I emerge with a massive pile of comics and then take them home. <laughs> Maybe a braver person would have just done it. But I did save one other comic because I thought it was fitting. It is issue four of Justice League Task Force. Oh, my God. And it features Jean, Lady Shiva, and Gypsy on the front cover. I didn't realise Lady Shiva had ever joined the Justice League in any form. No, she just turns up as a, as a cameo in this oh, issue. okay. That's all right. But yeah, both these comics, the Hawkeye miniseries and all, all the other Superman comics were kind of like the whole reign of the Superman kind of era. Oh, God, sort of thing. wow. So but clearly this person who chucked all these comics, uh, they're all from like 1993, basically. <laughs> That's the one year this person collected comics. Apparently so, apparently so. And they've, they've fallen out of love with that year. And I just thought, what a cosmic coincidence that we're reading the Grant Morrison storyline, which expressly references the existence of the Justice League task force. Yeah. And and I and I have an issue of it in front of me. Well, it's, it's that, that issue, that second issue of Hawkeye, when you've talked about that first issue a few times, and that one of the things we've discussed doing after we finish Morrison's JLA is looking at the entire death of Superman up to and including Reign of the Supermen. I was... Thinking of you when I saw all those super, and I, I kind of feel bad for not grabbing them now. In hindsight, I've got the Return of Superman trade, which collects all of Reign of the Supermen. Is good. What's yeah? What's wild is that? I, I'm assuming I I got there not long after this person dropped them in because they they're really in fine condition. There's nothing wrong with them. That's that's crazy, and just one of those cosmic coincidences. Makes you wonder if maybe there are higher beings up there. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe they like our podcast. <laughs> maybe we're uh, we're channeling Morrison. You know what I mean? Like maybe we're performing a a chaos magic working in in the style of Morrison themselves, and mm. and this is something we've we've conjured into being. <laughs> oh, I wonder what else we can conjure. Uh, the inevitable interview, PJ. 
Yes, that would be good. You know it's happening. It has to at this point. Anyway, the the interesting thing, really interesting thing to me is, is like now I'm looking at uh, part two of this Hawkeye miniseries, is realising that, because I didn't know anything as a kid, uh, it's written by Chuck Dixon. <laughs> wow. What would I really know Chuck Dixon from? Uh, Chuck Dixon was one of the writers on the Batman comics in the 90s, I think. I think mainly his work was on Robin, uh, Robin's solo series. Um, I believe he's gone a bit comics gatey these days. Well, the less said about that, the better. uh, If he hasn't, and I'm wrong, apologies to Chuck Dixon. But if he has, you're a terrible person, Chuck Dixon. (laughs) It's just one of those names where, like, I feel I've always seen it around, but I can't really pinpoint an exact uh, thing associated with them. In fact, I'm um, pretty sure, and I can't check this right now, I don't have it in front of me, but I'm pretty sure he wrote the um, Detective Comics 1 million we looked at in DC 1 million. Oh, heck, I've got my spreadsheet open. Hang on, hang on. Ah, oh, no, I didn't put that I didn't put those, that information in. You know what? The name does ring a bell. I think we have brought him up before, and it may have been in that context. I'm, just, I'm, I'm Googling Detective Comics 1 million because I have Google at my fingertips because we live in a remarkable modern world. Akin to witchcraft. Anybody listening, I, the long-term fans out there are screaming into their their earpieces right now because they know they know the, they know what we don't. Yeah, we're one of those shows where where we don't remember the detail, but other people are maybe keeping a wiki for us and they're remembering everything we've said before. <laughs> uh, yeah, Chuck Dixon wrote Detective yeah. Comics. Yeah, there we go. Okay, you then, know yes, the, I... the the worst issue in that trade. Uh, probably. Hmm. Is it the worst thing we've reviewed? Yes, I think mm. it is. Yes, it's, it's up there, isn't it? Yeah. 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 The other interesting thing I would say is that um, the artwork on this Hawkeye story is by um, Scott Collins. Oh, I really like Scott Collins's artwork. Well, here's the weird thing. So do I. And I know, I know he did um, The Flash for a good while. Yeah, yeah. I think I want to say like early two thousands. He was quite prolific at Marvel as well. Did like the Marvel team up series they had there, and a Wolverine and Hulk mini series, and some other stuff as well. That yeah, was really good. The Avengers for a little while. Yes, yes, he was, wasn't he? With um, was it was that when Jeff Johns was writing it? I think it was just after. I think it's when Chuck Austin was writing it, and they did the Invaders, the new Invaders yes. storyline. Yes, a different Chuck. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, yeah. too many, Which, too many Chucks. Wasn't a very well written storyline, but the art was great. Well, you know what's weird is there's a load of artists that I came to kind of know and appreciate uh, in the late nineties, but mostly going into like the two thousands when I was a bit more kind of savvy about the names mm. who were working on a on a series. And Scott Collins was one of them. You know, I, I started to know these names. I, I think um, uh, Carlos uh, Pacheco yep. as well. If I'm pronouncing the surname right, I, I hope I am. Um, oh, maybe may, maybe even Olivia Capel, although I know he's a little later. Well, it would be mid two about 2005, I want to say. His Thor with JMS, mm, oh yes, that was the first yeah. time I became aware of him. So yeah, he'd be around that era. But the really weird thing is when you see the uh, you trace the the origins of these of these artists and when they kind of started out and they generally got their first gig in kind of like the mid to early 90s. Yeah. And I would say that Scott Collins's artwork from 1993 
is almost unrecognisable compared to his mid-2000s artwork. That makes sense to me because that happens with so many artists, doesn't it? You look at, as an example, um, the first one that springs to my mind is Frank Miller. His artwork at the beginning of his Daredevil run in the early 80s, compare that to Dark Knight Returns just like five, six years later, and it's completely different. You wouldn't Mm. recognise it as the same artist. The weird thing is, is kind of, and I, and I guess same with like, um, well, Howard Porter. I mean, even just talking about this series, it's like how young he was when he got started out. Yeah. <coughs> oh, pardon me. Yeah, like these guys are probably like in their early twenties when they're starting out, and it's it's weird to see like I don't know the experience, the maturity develop as their careers go on. Because I'm not saying that like this artwork of 1993 artwork of Scott Collins is bad. It certainly isn't. But it's also very early 90s. Yeah. You know, there are like some poses, for example, which are, are I don't want to say like anatomically wrong, just kind of like I would say anatomically exaggerated, perhaps. Yes. Yeah. But I kind of love it all the same. There's like a, and Hawkeye is just so astonishingly grizzled. You know, he's wearing the Hawkeye costume, but he's got stubble and he's wearing a jacket over the top because Ooh, the 90s. Jacket. That's how you know it's serious. <laughs> But hey, the interesting thing about Justice League Task Force, this issue I picked up, uh, sadly, is that uh, Triumph is not in it. <laughs> oh, Triumph. That would have been perfect. I would it have would loved have. to have seen Triumph in it, or, or Ray in their, in their moment. But no, it's a solo adventure about Gypsy, and then uh, Lady Shiva's there, and Jean pops up as well. See, Ray is a character that kind of confuses me a little bit in terms of what age he's supposed to be. Because he a few a, a little while after his appearance here, he turns up in Young Justice and joins Young Justice because he's actually still a teenager or something. Oh, really? And it's like, wait, but he's been around since the eighties, and yeah, and in, in this issue coming up, Batman's going to refer to him as a good kid. So, <laughs> well, and also, I guess in um, DC One Million, Ray and Firestorm are like the kind of like young impetuous ones. I think it's it's Peter Parker syndrome, isn't it? There are certain characters who just aren't really allowed to age. I feel like now Miles Morales is around in the Marvel Universe. They are allowed to do that to Peter a bit more, and they are letting that happen to a degree. But yeah, there are certain characters in both Marvel and DC who just don't really age at there haven't, all. There haven't been two Rays, have there? Is it a legacy hero? I think... Yes. I wasn't there one who was a member of um what's the team called? Uncle Sam and the Freedom Fighters. Yeah, like a really, really old one. Yeah, who has like the fin on his mask that the current Ray has on his helmet, but other than that he's just wearing like a golden onesie with like a weird spiked collar thing over his shoulders. I know um I I've said it before, but I'd only ever encounter my first encounter with the Ray was um, uh, World War Three, the final volume of this series, where he was just in the background of a few mm. panels, and I thought he was the coolest looking character I've ever ever seen. I really uh, like the Ray's costume. I think amazing, he's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> and and it's so it ticks all the boxes because it's like you know oh he's activating his powers he's black all over he's like a silhouette he looks so cool. Uh, he's not activating his powers. He's got those like white jodper kind of things, like Captain Britain esque tr- uh, <laughs> trousers. 
It's just such a strong look. Um, it, it feels like one of those costumes that sort of originated in the 80s and 90s that sort of felt of its time, but also still works today. Sadly, in Final Crisis, sorry to bring that up again, but um, but Ray has a brief appearance in one issue there in a much worse costume. Yeah, that sounds about right. Like, I know it was the 90s and a lot of heroes were wearing like a bomber jacket over Lycra, which is, again, an incredibly good look. But if there was a character who could justify keeping it for the following 20 years, it'd probably be the Ray. I'd say the Ray and Rogue. Oh my god, Rogue, yeah. Rogue yeah. should totally, yeah. Those two should always have a jacket. <laughs> and maybe like special allowance for Cyclops on it, on, on like holidays or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, Cyclops just needs to lose the top of his, of his Wongzi like permanently. Yeah. You know, the um the top of his head, I mean to say. So it's not like a body sock. He's so just he's got, got the like, hair poking the out. The hair popping out, yeah. Yeah, I think a few years ago he did go back to his uh, mid-90s classic costume for a little bit. But uh, I, I gather he's not wearing it again anymore. And that's but, sad. But what, Wildcats, uh, I know I know you have um, strong feelings about the Wildcats, PJ. Yeah, only good ones. <laughs> but um, uh, it, it, it's not much of a secret that they were at the time a pretty blatant ripoff of the X-Men. Yeah. But Spartan's costume, which is just the kind of palette swapped version of Cyclops's costume from the 90s is also very very good. You know, what I really like is Apollo when they merged Cyclops with the Ray for Amalgam and you mm. got the best of the Ray's costume with the best of Cyclops's costume. Oh my god, it works so well, it? Was didn't perfect. It? Oh, we're gonna have, we're gonna have to do the Judgment League Avengers, aren't yeah. we? Well, yeah, yeah. Howard Porter drew it, didn't he? So yeah, and Mark Wade. Yeah, yeah. All right, yeah. we'll do that. <laughs> um, I I know from when we did the two Wizard um, specials. Uh, I think that's when it. I learned that Howard Porter's first gig was drawing the Ray. The oh, Ray, okay. Yeah, the Ray miniseries, which I have to assume may have even like introduced this costume to the world mm, yeah um so and i think he said in the interview he has like a tremendous soft spot for the character so i don't know if morrison does as well and it was just a complete coincidence that ray just keeps popping up over the course of this series <laughs> i mean also based on my interview i mean certainly morrison and porter had never even spoken to each other like a couple of books into the series. I know, I know. You've you got to imagine they did at some point, surely. You'd have, you'd have to hope, wouldn't you? That's, it's crazy. <laughs> wow. Well, anyway, PJ, sorry. So that, I literally, that's what it came to. I had my head in a dumpster and I was salvaging comics. I mean, you're, you're doing good work, John Locke. That's what I would say. Uh, PJ, um, if you could, again, please bring a touch of class and professionalism to the podcast it, you know given that your dumpster diving sleep addled co-pilot here is screwing up um what on earth are we talking about and what are we doing this i think of all the stories we have looked at and will be looking at as part of morrison's jla crisis times five is the hardest one to recap because it's so damn weird so essentially there are two fifth dimensional beings looks and yiz who are also kind of genies, and one of them looks is also the Thunderbolt that Johnny Thunderbolt used during World War II in the Justice Society of America. And they are 
like at war on Earth, everything's going crazy. The JLA and the JSA have teamed up to try and stop it. At the same time, Triumph, who is a founding member of the Justice League, who fell through time and, and everyone forgot he existed, uh, has come back. He has made a bargain with one of these fifth dimensional creatures, the evil one, looks, and now has his powers and a costume and is basically trying to forcefully reclaim his place on the JLA. He's he's He is taking them down with the help of mind-controlled Gypsy and Ray, who were on his team, and Green Lantern and Captain Marvel, who, open brackets, punched out Superman, close brackets, are trapped in the fifth dimension with the true mastermind behind everything, Aquaman's old friend Quisp, or Quisp, who is also a fifth dimensional being, uh, and Batman and Aquaman are now on the Watchtower, about to give a beatdown to Triumph, the Ray, and Gypsy. Also, Steel and Our Man are around. Yes, and Our Man, the temporary uh, replacement member of the league as Jean is on leave uh, being the master of time has said that somebody will die yes yeah, doesn't al- know who. also also the spectre is trapped in a rock with people living on it because otherwise he could get involved and stop things so Zariel and Sentinel have accelerated time on the rock so that this society will still live its full life, but will also die out really quickly so they can free the Spectre without technically murdering anyone. And despite everything, this is also one of the most coherent stories we've looked at over the course of this run. Yeah, to be honest, you really should have listened to the last three episodes. (laughs) (laughs) I swear it flows really well. Like, it honestly works really well in the moment. It it does. It does. Trying to recap it though, I, I saying those words felt ridiculous. Well, I mean, should we just uh, should we just dive into the recap and uh, you know kind of take it as it comes? Yeah. Well, we open back with the quintessence because they're also here for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Um, the uh, kind of five mostly bearded beings who mm. kind of uh, watch over the universe, kind of. Yeah, but I feel like this was a very brief thing in the DC universe because some of these people are sort of here because they're technically dead, but then some of them come back from the dead. And I I, th- I feel like the quintessence was really only around a few years. Yeah, it was like a kind of temporary arrangement sort of yeah. thing. I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? When you decree that there is a, a kind of omnipresent, omnipowerful um, council over overlooking a universe... Um, it's only because you haven't discovered something bigger yet. Mm, yeah. I mean, I think Marvel's done something similar a few times. <laughs> yeah, once or twice. I mean, just thinking about it for a moment, like in DC versus Marvel, or Marvel versus DC, um, we obviously have the Spectre uh, up against the Living Tribunal that has kind of like counterparts. Yeah, which... I think when you really drill down, makes almost no sense. Those two are not the equivalents of each other, but also I feel like DC mandated that the Spectre had to be involved as their sort of god-level power hero character, and Marvel didn't really have one that fit the bill, and the Living Tribunal was the closest they could come up with. Hmm. Well, I was just thinking that um, I haven't really seen the Living Tribunal in a very long time. Like in in kind of any context, really. Uh, he's not a character who pops up a lot. I, other than DC versus Marvel, I can only think of... I 
think he turned up in Dan Slott's run on She-Hulk uh, when she was doing Cosmic oh, Lawyer stuff. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That makes sense. Uh, but that's all I've got. It's a hell of a visual. But again, yes. it's almost like The Watcher would be more kind of like fitting or something like that. Maybe. But maybe not as powerful. Yeah, also wouldn't interfere. Mm. Oh, well, I'm glad, I hope the Living Tribunal is happy, wherever they are. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the quintessence, uh, these kind of five uh, weird bearded individuals are uh, just kind of like a Greek chorus, just watching the whole thing play out and providing commentary. And uh, yeah, they, they, they kind of just give us a, uh, a little bit of a recap because we cut to this miniature world, which was literally built around the Spectre, who's kind of just trapped in a rock. And uh, thanks to the actions of Zariel and Sentinel, it's dying. Yeah, there's a city off in the distance that's just basically burned to the ground. It's a smoking, ruined husk with some a, a little village of tents in front of it. And Zauriel is cradling the dead body of an old man who... Yeah, well, it looks like the last of his race has just passed away. And we cut... Uh, also, I always thought this was an awesome panel, and it still is. Uh, we cut to a profile shot of the Spectre's uh, kind of immense face, kind of like bigger than mountain ranges, uh, embedded in the ground. And uh, he's uh, screaming or roaring, and there's just kind of like explosions of energy erupting out of the ground and out of his eyes. Uh, it looks It looks amazing, to be honest. What I love about this panel is I think you can really feel the movement and that there's no movement or streak lines or anything like that used here. It's literally just the the look of effort on the Spectre's face as he's trying to force his way out of this rock and the explosions going off around him to let you know that something is something is happening, something is coming here. You can it's a slow movement for sure, but you can really feel it in this panel. There's an energy to it that that is is brilliant. And then, of course, we get a close-up of the Spectre's eyes, each of which have a tiny skull inside them. Now, Peter, I feel this is a bit of a, mo uh, a motif, if you will, with the Spectre. Like, when did we start seeing, like, a skull in his eyes? I couldn't tell you. I don't remember. That might have been in his own series in the mid-90s. I haven't read much of that. I think it was a Vertigo series but that was all somehow still in the DCU because Superman guest starred in an issue and he had his long hair at the time. But King Kingdom Come, didn't that do it? Oh, I think it might have, actually, yeah. Yeah, I think... Thinking back, I think there's a couple of panels where you get, like, intense... Obviously, Alex Ross painted close-up of the Spectre and then blinking, you'll miss it. Like, tiny little speck in the middle of his eye is almost like a like a JPEG of a skull, like a, mm. kind of like a, a tiny little white outline. It's very cool. But yeah, um, we turn that page, though, from from the a close-up of the Eye of God's Wrath uh, to uh, just a really badass double-page spread. Yeah, this is great. Uh, Batman and Aquaman have just ambushed Triumph and, and his team. So you've got Batman throwing batarangs at both the Ray and Gypsy while Aquaman punches Triumph with his big metal hand. And it's oh, it's a brilliant double page spread. I love it. I, I love how many batarangs there are. Oh, there's, yeah, I'm going to count them. Uh, everyone at home, just imagine elevator music for a moment. Now imagine a little more. I've got 20. Oh, no, wait, 21. Okay, so Batman is literally, 
like a kind of uh, pick and mix uh, sweetie bag worth of mini batarangs, and it's just chucking them. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, one can only imagine at their effect. I mean, even if they have no effect, I'd be pretty confused and momentarily startled if someone threw 21 tiny batarangs at me. Yeah, conveniently as well, Batman's written the title of the story on one of them as well. That's that's very nice of him to do that. I appreciate it. And just by chance, it's also the one that is closest to the camera, as it were. So we can see here the title, Crisis Times 5, Part 4, Gods and Monsters. Yeah, and um, it's it's just re- it's just a really good picture. Like, I... I um... Even you know, even Triumph appears momentarily. I mean, he, we're, we're talking kind of like Superman level power here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, getting punched from Aquaman is it's going to sting a little. But I think you know, ultimately, it's not going to not going to take him down, is it? Probably not. But we also get our roll call here, and uh, they haven't really they've sort of separated out JLA and JSA, but not exactly. So. It's two columns on the left, Superman, Huntress, Aquaman, Green Lanterns, Ariel, Steel, Flash, and Batman. But what I love about the picture of Batman, it makes me laugh, because it just <laughs> looks like the top half of his head has slowly risen into the panel, and he's just peeking <laughs> over. <laughs> uh, and then on the other side, Hippolyta, Spectre, Sentinel, Oracle, Our Man, Captain Marvel, JJ Thunder, and Wildcat. It's so weird. There's so many characters who appear in this in this Wong story that... I'm almost convinced that isn't everyone. It's not. Oh, Jay Jay Garrick isn't there. Yep, and Plastic Man reappears at the end of the story as well. Eh, we'll let him off. Yeah. We also get the credits. Grant Morrison, writer, Howard Porter, penciler, John Del Inca, Ken Lopez, letterer, Pat Garrahy, colorist, Heroic Age Separations, Tony Bernard, associate editor, and Dan Raspler, editor. This is a nice... Um, I'm sure a more talented person than I could describe the literary device here is it dramatic irony i don't know but anyway this is basically like the setup and the payoff with no dialogue which i love at the end of last issue we just see batman and aquaman waiting behind a doorway and then we're just right into a a silent but awesome big double page spread picture of them just kind of beating ass and yeah i love it because you just go oh this is how comics work i understand what happened i don't need any dialogue yeah, exactly, exactly. It just follows on straight away. We know exactly what's happening, and we know how cool Batman and Aquaman are. So, and I do love it when Howard Porter has the space to because I, I could. I mean, I, I know, I know, everybody knows that drawing a twenty-two page comic is a, a momentous undertaking for anyone. Um, but I do love it when Porter is given a bit of space to just kind of flex his muscles. Yes, because, agreed. Yeah, this is. This is Porter at his best, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And then we, we turn over and Triumph basically says, everything has to be a fight, doesn't it? That's fine. <laughs> I can fight. And he blasts Aquaman across the room. It looks like he sort of punches him, but puts some energy into it as well. So there's a slight explosion of Kirby crackle and Aquaman goes flying while the Ray tries to fly away from Batman in the background. Yeah. And I guess we just never really 100% understand how Triumph's powers work. You know, whether his powers have just been amplified or whether he's gained like a whole new suite of them as well. But um, yeah, it clearly is not massively phased by Aquaman's attack. Yeah. And Aquaman, I mean, like, bless him. Like, he's absolutely ruined by this punch. Like, he's just ragdolling across the room. (laughs) Yeah, but we then get a panel, and I love this, 
Batman says, My contribution to today's historic meeting of the JLA and Justice Society, one of Dr. Midnight's blackout bombs, as he lobs it at the ray. <laughs> and I love that Batman bothers sometimes. It's like, he's yeah, he cares about this stuff as much as anyone else. I know. He didn't have to. That's the thing. You know, he, he had absolutely no obligation to play around with the rest of the JLA. But no, he did. He's not quite the grump that everyone thinks he is. <laughs> and damn it, he gets results, PJ. Yeah, because the blackout bomb goes off, it negates the Ray's powers, and then Batman just punches him in the face, says, you're a bright quick kid, Ray, stay out of this. Yeah, not being cruel. It's just, you know, it's, it's a nice gentle Batman punch. Yeah, just enough to knock him out without doing too much permanent damage. Uh, meanwhile, speaking of permanent damage, uh, Aquaman, probably nursing a few broken ribs, uh, is picking himself up. Looks like he's already on the ropes, and he and he's basically like kind of coughing and making some kind of just guttural kind of noise. And he says, uh, "I have to stop Quisp. Don't understand. Only I can stop Quisp." And Triumph is like, "I don't know what you're trying to say. Like, you know, literally, like the hell is a Quisp? You're just making bizarre noises at this point." Yeah, basically going, all I want is to be in charge of the Justice League, and that's how it should be. And, and then, Yeah, I'm sorry, PJ. <laughs> I was going to say, and then we get a panel of Batman that reminds me of the one where, from uh, New World Order, where he walks into the room dragging four unconscious Martians <laughs> behind him. Only this time it's just the ray in his hand, but it's a very similar pose. <laughs> and I love also that Batman, you know, having just instantly taken out the super, super-powered ray... Uh, is he doesn't call Triumph Triumph. And Batman uses people's names quite effectively. Like, he's always very selective about what he says. I think he's, you know, for example, I think he called Wally Mr. West at one point. Mm. Um, but no, he calls him McIntyre. Because he's like, I do not respect you enough to call you by your superhero name. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's It's a psychological tactic, isn't it? Get him angry by not showing him the respect he thinks he deserves. Oh, yeah, quite. Yeah, he's just like, you know, McIntyre, I don't care what your grudge is. You know, Batman, I'm not saying he's beyond forgiveness. He certainly isn't. But he's just <laughs> like, also, you, you're, it's, it's the worst kind of violence. It's the worst kind of villainy, if you suppose. It's pointless. Like, yeah. you're here with no grand plan. You're just kind of greedy and petty, and I don't have the time for you, basically. Yeah. And he tries to tell him that the genie he's unleashed isn't what he thinks it is. And Triumph is like, yeah, I don't believe you. Just as Aquaman fires his new liquid metal hand, which is still on a rope, and grabs Triumph by the throat from afar. It's brilliant. So is it? Is it? Is it liquid metal, PJ? I think it is. I think he can change the shape of it. I might be wrong about that. That was my understanding. No, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I wonder if um, this is the kind of beginning of... Well, I mean, I guess it began when he had his hand cut off, but like... This is the beginning of the evolution of the Aquaman hook, I suppose. And yeah, because gradual... after this, he gets the water hand, doesn't he, um, mm. in a couple of years' time. Either way, I mean, like, you know, whether you're being hit by a grappling hook or a, a hand that can, you know, kind of do the same thing. Yeah, um, he's choking Triumph, which is quite nice. Yeah, but then Gypsy either materialises or teleports. I'm genuinely not sure what her powers are behind it's Aquaman. Of, it's kind of like invisibility. Okay. 
I think that's her power. If it's not invisibility, it's like a like a like a camouflage kind of ability. Right. That makes sense. But yeah, she she materializes behind Aquaman and and says protect Triumph and Aquaman tries to remind her that they're they're friends. They work together in Detroit and he needs to stop Quisp, so she should not do anything to hurt him. And the words seem to have a bit of an effect. Like you can see this kind of like electromagnetic crackle around hers and you know, the Ray's head because Triumph's messing with their their the nervous systems in their in their brain. Uh, but for a minute she's like you know, she's like, oh, uh, like, where am I? Like, Arthur? And she goes, but you you grew a beard and and you went away. <laughs> you grew a beard and you went away is maybe one of my favourite lines <laughs> Morrison's ever written. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, that, I, it, it's kind of harking to a weird, a weirder period, an even weirder period in like JLA history where like, wasn't it like it was Aquaman essentially flying the flag for the Justice League? Yeah. And he had all these kind of like C and D list heroes like running around with him. Like yeah. Vibe. I, I, I feel like it was sort of a a middle ground for Aquaman between his classic era and where we find him now. I think he still had the orange top and the green green trunks. And he but he, he still had the short blonde hair, but he did have the beard, mm. I think. Yeah, I'm trying to picture it. It's it's weird, isn't it? Because like I think Aquaman's kind of flip-flopped if you will fish pun over the years um between being like a joiner i mean even the leader on occasion yeah and then just wanting nothing to do with them yeah well he even sort of starts that way at the beginning of morrison's run doesn't he and then just sort of finds he's getting into it and enjoying it <laughs> yeah and i guess you know in many ways like this entire series the entire morrison run is essentially about the d and e listers getting pushed to the side to some to some extent you could do quite a nice companion book to this which would be what happened to nuclon ice maiden obsidian and metamorpho well metamorpho died john uh, show some respect uh, um, i can think of at least two inca- following incarnations of metamorpho <laughs> oh he he came back just oh, not yeah. yet <laughs> i mean like you know it He's no, he didn't die, PJ. He was inert. <laughs> um, but uh, Triumph, uh, who is clearly a multitasker at least, um, kind of again using his weird, I guess, kind of magnetic powers, uh, holds up one hand and just kind of catches a, a batarang midair and grabs ba- uh, Aquaman's um, robo grappling hook arm and I guess just kind of sends like electricity like arcing along it yeah and that seems to hit aquaman at the same time as gypsy punches him in the back of the head as well and aquaman just sort of goes down at this point yeah and um i'm full credit to batman for even trying because i i guess triumph could probably snap in him in half if he got hold of him um but batman leaps up behind triumph to kind of take him down just because Triumph is kind of gloating and saying, like, you know, ours was the right league at the wrong time, Gypsy. That's all. This is our time now. And then he just kind of spins and uh, punches Batman into a wall because, as he says, he has 360-degree hypersenses. Yeah. And 
Batman, I think he punches him through the JLA table because he sort of goes through the Superman logo chair. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but then this next page here is <laughs> an absolute highlight of, again, this is one of my very favourite moments. So we, we the top of the page is a close-up of Triumph, just sort of looking over his shoulder as he says, right, Let's uh, get these two into the brig. I think that's what they call it. It's a brig on Star Trek anyway. And then we'll go save the the Earth from the genie. And then there's just a small, did you hear a close-up on his eyes as they go wide? And he says, uh-oh. And then you get three amazing panels of this blue and red streak smashing through walls inside the watchtower. Just, just something moving at incredible speed. And then the bottom half of the page is a panel of triumph looking very small on the right-hand side of it as something smashes through the wall behind him and he just says, Superman woke up. Yeah, you don't even see Superman. You just see this red blur yeah um and yeah it's it's perfect comedic timing because it's it's like uh, it's like um time is frozen and the bullet if you will is just like inches away from triumph and uh it looks like it's gonna hurt yeah to be honest yeah but it's also just superman was knocked out by captain marvel and now he's woken up and he's instantly on it he knows exactly what's going on already he can hear what's happening with his super hearing and he's like i'm just gonna deal with this well, quite, and and also it's like, you know, I think we've touched upon it a few times. It's like, it's very easy to pass kind of Superman off as, uh, you know, a Boy Scout, a goody-goody. But it's like when push comes to shove, here he is seeing, because he kind of sees everything, seeing like two of his oldest and dearest allies get desperately hurt by Triumph. And so there are no words, there are no words necessary, even Superman is going to punch triumph triumph and then and then pick up the pieces. I think this is another one of my absolute favorite superman moments in this book and it's one where you don't even really see him properly it's just him at super speed a streak of color. Uh but it's it's perfect it's wonderful and as you say it's the timing of it the sort of the smash 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 bang superman woke up. Perfect. And also it's like, again like a good magic trick this is the promise you yeah. know we the audience can already fill in the blanks because they know what's about to go down. It's just it's it's pulled off so effortlessly. Like no dialogue needed. That's the beauty of it. I'd love to see the script for this page. See how much of the layout and everything was Porter and how much of it Morrison scripted. I think that would be really interesting to go back and look at that and see see how it was originally written. Actually, the um. From from uh, PJ, just quickly, are you starting to feel sorry for Triumph, or does he does he still no know, and his amazing haircut? Or? No, not at all. To be honest, I think he's a very selfish villain, so it's hard to feel sorry for him because his his he's only out for himself at the moment. You can feel sorry for him at the beginning of the story, but everything he does from then on just turns you against him. So no, I'm I'm happy to see Superman rushing towards him like this. Um. So from the righteous beatdown that uh, PJ's been hoping for, um, <laughs> we cut suddenly to the fifth dimension, or dimension five, as it's otherwise known, where, um, okay, give me a minute, where the various five-dimensional imps are holding like a 
a, a legal proceeding or like a kind of uh, municipal building, town hall kind of thing, where the speakers are Green Lantern and Captain Marvel who are represented as two-dimensional beings on floating pieces of paper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, think that, I think that's pretty accurate. Yeah, and then there's a bunch of imps, but they've all got sort of slightly different forms. They have different sized and shaped ears, and one looks like Elvis, another one looks a bit like the Dalai Lama. <laughs> it's very, um, again, going back to uh, last last issue's depiction of a fifth dimension, it's very like um, cartoony, like like uh, an old Felix the Cat cartoon. Yeah. It's, it's inherently ridiculous. Yeah, and so the the judge says, look, we've, we're trying to make this easy for you to comprehend. We've We've taken these forms and we've arranged everything here so that you can sort of understand what's going on to Green Lantern and Captain Marvel. I like that she also calls them little flat men. <laughs> And um, Captain Marvel is, bless him, is doing uh, an admirable job of trying to plead their case to the courts of the fifth dimension, which is a wonderful sentence. I'm so glad I got to say it. Um, (laughs) Where, you know, um, the fifth dimension are making the case that, like, what? It's it's pretty normal. Like, it's, it's, uh, it's two corks going to war, you know? And Captain Marvel's like, yes. And from our perspective... We're experiencing the clash of five-dimensional colors as a monstrous struggle of opposing energy beings. Like, I, I think we're talking different languages here, basically. Yeah, and Green Lantern's narrating this page, and he actually says Captain Marvel... He says what we've said a few times. He's like a kid's idea of what a grown man should be. He's strong and he's tough, and we could have made it here without him. <laughs> but... He also rec- recognises there's a naivety to Captain Marvel, a, this child within, that he's not really thinking things through in the way Kyle can at the moment. That's the thing. It's like, um, you know, even with the wisdom of Solomon, there's a certain perspective that only Kyle can bring to this. And again, just showing some of Morrison's love for Kyle, I'm so glad that Kyle had this moment to do yeah. something cool. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Be- because Kyle Kyle points out that uh, you know, hey, I'm I'm an artist, you know, I'm not always a superhero, and uh, you know, in my world, colors don't fight each other, they mix. So I mean, like, what if the five dimensional color pink and the five dimensional color blue kind of stopped their war and just kind of blended into purple? <laughs> And Captain Marvel realises this is what Shazam was talking about in Chapter 1 when he said the wisdom of Solomon will be needed. He says, holy moly, Green Lantern, you're right. And, um, yeah, and apparently uh, the uh, kind of uh, chairperson of this court is uh, uh, Miss... uh, God, you're good at this, PJ. Uh, (laughs) Gespunklunks, yeah. (laughs) And uh, we learn um, that uh, she's the partner of um, Mr. Muxius Butluk. Thank you, PJ. Yes. And um, she basically points out that the the, the biggest stakes they can possibly deal with is that um, the uh, the third dimension where they live is uh, Mr. Muxius hobby. And she says that if, um, if Earth ends up getting broken... My husband will never leave the house again. <laughs> so we we have to solve it. 
And then she shouts, and again, superb dialogue here. Activate dimension compressors, reverse your names, descend from fifth dimension to third. And then apparently they're in the shield helicarrier. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, or if not a heli carrier, maybe it's a bit like a, uh, a carrier carrier from the world of the authority, perhaps it's a big spaceship basically. Yeah. Yeah. But while they're flying back to the third dimension, Kyle says to Captain Marvel, look, I don't know how we're going to get them to combine. And Captain Marvel realizes, well, the fifth dimension seems to run on pure imagination. There's magic words everywhere. It's it's magic words. And then the immortal line, I have to get back to Earth to do some serious skywriting. And Kyle just says, man, it's when I hear guys say crazy stuff like that, I remember why I love this job. <laughs> but then he says, apparently the process of decompressing back to Flatland is a bit unpleasant because he suddenly forgets why he enjoys this job. <laughs> uh, but PJ, we're, we're back in Keystone City in an alleyway. Yeah, and there is an almost instant tonal shift. The colours suddenly seem a little more muted because it's also raining. Keystone is where all the destruction's been and it's where the JSA, Hippolyta and Wildcat and Huntress now are confronting Quisp. Uh, yeah, who, again, is this kind of Peter Pan-esque malevolent figure kind of just floating there. Uh, and it's kind of weird, like... Obviously, Quisp is very malevolent, but almost in an alien way where he's being malevolent because he doesn't really understand what malevolence is. So he's just kind of like trying it out like a like a hat kind of. It's yeah. I think there's an there's an interesting comparison to Captain Marvel here, really, because Quisp has said his motivation is he was Aquaman's happy go lucky pal basically in the Silver Age, right at the beginning of it, when Aquaman was a happy-go-lucky character. He came back, found Aquaman had gone all grimdark, and now he said, well, I'm going to be grim and be a bad guy too, but it's a very childish idea of what that entails. Yeah. Just like Captain Marvel is a child's idea of what a good man is. And because Quisp is trying... I, I don't know if this is some kind of meta-commentary on comics at the time, but because Quisp is trying to essentially just evoke a grimdark story and it's basically like um yeah someone just has to die you know come on uh someone sacrifice themselves because this is this is what heroes do and this is what a grimdark story is so um somebody just needs to die basically yeah and hippolyta says look we'd all die in the child's place if that's what it takes to end this and JJ just says, nope, not happening. Nobody's dying for me. I don't want the genie. He can fright for himself. I'm going to run away. Yeah, and 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 then Wildcat uh, basically says, ah, you know, I, I thought you had the grit, kid. And, uh, well, if it takes a life to show you what... And then he doesn't, even get to, he doesn't even get to finish the sentence before Quisp just kind of, like, effortlessly reaches out and strikes Wildcat in the chest with, like, this bolt of lightning. And, yeah, kills him. Yeah. It, it, his chest seems to sort of explode. Energy f comes out of his mouth as well. And then he's just lying on the ground in Hippolyta's arms, smoke pouring from his mouth, his chest on fire. And she says his his heart has just burst. Wildcat's dead. And Huntress, who'd been bonding with Wildcat, really getting to know and like the guy, is just sort of screams and fires a crossbow bolt at Quisp. 
Yeah, and and again, like Quisp is like fascinated by this, almost like a, I don't know, like a like a kid playing with ants. You know, it's kind of like, oh wow, yeah, you have free will. God, this is this is delightful. You know, it's like uh, just playing with toys, and um, yeah, and then Quisp catches like Huntress's like arrow like effortlessly and talks about how. He always forgets how fragile things are in the third dimension. And he says, uh, your laws of physics, I can wear them like a funny paper hat if I want. And honestly, that's a line which has woven its way into my brain because I often find myself kind of <laughs> quoting that for some... And the context in which I can quote it is quite is quite few and far between. But yeah, I, yeah, for some reason, like I always, I always think of that line. It's a great line. It's a great line. And this is where... Quisp also says he goes on about how he's going to be the Justice League's greatest enemy. It's going to be so easy. He's going to empty the oceans into space, and he's going to enjoy seeing Aquaman's face when he does that. Uh, but then he he's still going after JJ, and he says, "Hmm, you have a birth connection with the fifth dimension. That's odd." Yeah, which is a which is a thing that uh, also Johnny Thunder had, which is yeah. apparently the is it the seventh son of the seventh son? Yes, I think that's enough sevens. Yeah, um, I think historically, I think that's sort of been a thing. The seventh son of a seventh son is is in mythology where a lot of people get their power. I know it's something Terry Pratchett played with as well. Yes, like, yes. Wizards would often be a seventh son, um, and then the book Sorcery as well took that one step further. So yeah, because isn't that in, in? Is it the eighth son? The eighth son of a seventh son of a seventh son. Yeah, yeah, becomes a a sorcerer. Yeah. yeah. Um, but while that's all going to hell. Uh, we cut back to the two genies, uh, Lux and Yiz. I think I've got that right. Yes. Who are each holding, and I always get them confused, uh, uh, Lux is the blue one? Yep. Yep. Okay, so Lux is holding the planet Earth in his hands. Like, literally, that's how big he is. And Yiz is holding uh, the moon. And, yeah, they're they're just kind of like... It's all just utter, like, literally, this is like a length hour kind of stuff. It's all just hell. Uh, Yiz is just very confused, needs JJ, basically. I like the way, though, that the way Yiz is holding the moon, it's, it's like he's about to shoot it. It looks like a Hadouken. <laughs> yes, that is true. <laughs> and it just comes down to the almost like it, it, it seems stupid to us because we can't understand fifth dimensional logic but yeah. it basically comes down to the fact that they're both all powerful looks can never be years and years can never be looks each is almighty so that's the entire point of their conflict basically is that they are just uh opposites um but uh looks is not paying attention because on the far side of the earth of the far side of the globe he's holding in both hands um words are starting to appear <laughs> This is bonkers. It's something that is so Silver Age, it shouldn't work in a 90s comic, and it does, and it's perfect, and I love it. Yes, because the giant uh, country-sized words that are appearing in clouds on the surface of the planet Earth are T-Bolt, save a word... And then some bizarre consonants are starting to get kind of formed below. Yeah. And, and we cut to Captain Marvel, who is literally herding 
global weather patterns with his speed and strength to spell out a message on the surface of the planet. Yeah, and he says Green Lantern's brash but likeable, but the word better be mixed right. So essentially, Kyle has what Kyle's done is worked out how to mix the names of the two princes to make purple. <laughs> and because he's the artist, he's the one who's got to try and figure it out. And also, we get, and it's a nice little meta thing here because we're hearing Captain Marvel's thoughts. Like, we're literally seeing them as um, thought. Bub- um, thought bubbles, which we we very rarely get. They definitely went out of fashion in comics. Mm. Uh, and uh, but Captain Marvel comics and goes, oh, whoops! I've still got some of that fifth dimensional thought smog clinging to my head. Better stop thinking. <laughs> so explaining away the thought bubbles in this instance, which is great. I miss thought bubbles. Yeah, they're weird. I, it's I I don't have anything against them in principle i i think just the the old style where it was almost like a personal narration has maybe i don't know maybe this seems old-fashioned but it doesn't mean it's bad i suppose they sort of got replaced by captions in the 90s didn't they anything that Mm. would have been in a thought bubble was put in a caption and then i know bendis tried to bring them back in mighty avengers but he overdid it there was it was too much of it in that it just didn't work but I, I just like to see them come back occasionally when a, a character's thinking something that isn't doesn't need us to be narrated. Um, well, Morrison loves the kind of bizarre. I mean, God, there's so much here in this story which could be like part of Morrison's developing thesis about comics and space time. But like in the uh, the the filth, there's the character of Max Thunderstone who, if I remember the name correctly, and the, the filth is ostensibly set in the real world, if I remember mm. this correctly, but the character of Max Thunderstone, through his own personal Zen-like philosophy of, of Buddhismo, has trained his body and his mind to be perfectly muscular, so <laughs> he can now manifest his thoughts as a cloud above his head, which appears as thought bubbles. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it's, it's really weird. And like, he never speaks a line of dialogue, if I recall. He's always just thinking. Amazing. <laughs> I haven't read that. I'll have to check out the, the filth. Yeah, it's... um, Well, as the name might suggest, it's pretty filthy. Oh, I mean, yeah, I figured. <laughs> this is, um, again, like um, the loose trilogy of uh, the Invisibles, Flex Mentalo, or Mentalo, and the the filth. And as Morrison themselves describes it, the filth was meant to be an exploration of everything sick and twisted about the human psyche. Hmm. And Morrison's belief in the project was so severe. This is Morrison's own words now, that they almost died because they caught sepsis. Oh, my God. And were were hospitalized, basically. Wow. Okay. And to hear Morrison talk about it, it's because they basically conjured the sickness through making the filth basically <laughs> i mean it's it's a very morrison flex they got better <laughs> <laughs> wow uh, but back in jla captain marvel has finished writing his message and you get a lovely little close-up of of yiz with a, a little pink light bulb in the middle of his head now going wow and then he says yiz <laughs> 
which is of course a a, a word or uh, anagram of looks and years combined. <laughs> yep. And then uh, all of a sudden, in a in a kind of purplish flash of energy, um, JJ punches Quisp in the face. Yeah, he just comes back, smacks him one, and. JJ previously had dropped the Thunderbolt pen, which was still glowing pink. The pen is now... Quisp had picked it up. He's dropping it now. And it's a purple pen, all of a sudden. Yeah, and uh, uh, JJ points out that if you're three-dimensional, that means you're solid. Uh, And uh, kind of harking back to what Batman did to Metron in uh, Rock of Ages. Yes. (laughs) Which was delightful. Uh, and uh, yeah, um, JJ clicks for pen. Purple energy crackles, and um, yeah, uh, uh, um, Green Lantern, uh, the Thunderbolt, and uh, the fifth dimensional police turn up. The the purple Thunderbolt. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yeah, the uh, the the head of the court. I can't remember her name. I'm not flipping back. She says only mischief is permitted in the third dimension. Quisp, mischief, not whatever this is. <laughs> <laughs> and they basically force him to say his name backwards. So he's like Buswook, Buswook, as they all vanish back to the fifth dimension. <laughs> yeah, because uh, the punishment is one million infinities in an eight dimensional maze. <laughs> And as they all just kind of get sucked back into this portal, uh, you have the Thunderbolt, you have JJ, and you have Kyle. And of course, Kyle and JJ haven't met yet. And uh, Kyle's like, uh, yeah, don't ask. <laughs> it was just, don't ask. It was yeah. weird. Yeah. But that, of course, doesn't wrap everything up, because we have to cut back to the Watchtower, where Superman and Triumph are wrestling. And this is this is the first moment I realised, oh, Triumph's quite powerful, isn't he? Mm. Well, it helps if you've got a genie, you know. That's true. That's true. I don't know if he could have done this with his original power set or if this is a souped-up fifth-dimensional version, but he's holding his own. He's as strong as Superman. He's as fast as Superman. He has powers Superman doesn't have names for. And he's siphoning the solar cells from, from Superman's body. Yeah, and we actually see, as you said, like, you know, Superman, because the two of them are just kind of like grappling, like uh, like wrestlers, and uh, we have kind of Superman being driven to his knee by Triumph, because ostensibly Triumph is more powerful. Yeah, because he just has these, well, frankly, weird ass, unexplained electromagnetic powers. Basically, Superman is still trying to reason with him as well because he is Superman. He says the world's under threat; people are dying. You were a leaguer. This isn't you. And if you do siphon the solar energy from me. You're going to kill me, and you are not a murderer. Yeah, again, Superman just, just frankly being the better person, and like constantly. still seeing the good in people who, quite frankly, don't deserve it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't think Batman would be giving giving Triumph a second chance here or no. a third chance. I'm, I'm actually losing count of how many chances he's, he's on right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Triumph it continues because it's kind of like. Uh, grind his axe on this basically saying like look i founded the jla i was there at the start if i hadn't been lost in time i'd be where you are now only for the voice of steel to hmm. come in over the kind of um tannoy system yeah. and basically say i recommend therapy get away from superman yeah and triumph says, i've already beaten you i shredded your armor like to confetti where are you 
and then an energy blast just hits Triumph and smacks him away from Superman, tears his cape to shreds. And it turns out Steel is wearing the watchtower. <laughs> and can I just say, this is one of the coolest Steel moments in the oh, whole yeah. run. <laughs> 100%. Um, and we cut to Steel, uh, essentially in his boxes still, <laughs> but wearing uh, what, frankly, in a different comic, could have been a, a legitimate costume in the 90s. Yeah. Uh just wearing like all this incredible like technological gubbings just kind of like connected to his body he's got an eyepiece he's got gauntlets he's got gloves yeah and he's basically he is as pj said he's wearing the watchtower the entire security systems are keyed to his body's control right now yeah yeah he's 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 basically got all the security systems and weapons at his command triumph's lost at this point he's got superman there steel's got all the watchtower defenses on him batman's still around i think aquaman's unconscious but that's all right and, and superman just flies over to triumph and says look you were dealt a rough hand but all you had to do was talk to us you were a fine leaguer will you'd have been welcome any time and the difference here of course is that batman called him mcintyre yeah and superman calls him will yeah yeah so yeah superman remembers his name even the even the D-Liskers, he remembers her name. And then he apologises and punches Triumph in the face. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this great moment as well of Triumph just looking confused just before Superman punches him, going, what? And then, yeah, the fist comes in. It's one of those panels where it's sh- the the word is the panel, so you get a, a wunch, I think it is. And <laughs> it's, yeah. It's brilliant. And this also releases Gypsy and Ray from Triumph's control, although Ray's also unconscious. Yeah, I mean, you know, Batman doesn't mess around. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but Gypsy's like, you know, what what the hell what the hell's even happening? And, uh, you know, what happened to Ray? Uh, and uh, Batman's like, yeah, he's fine. You know, <laughs> you, you were under telekinetic control. Triumph betrayed the League. He's finished. And... Um, yeah, and then we have, uh, I've always liked this panel of steel as well. He's just kind of going, uh, I've been doing some reading. Your powers are electromagnetic in nature. I'll microwave you from here if you don't stop. Yeah, and Triumph's still not down. He says, go ahead, I'll take it. I'll fry you with an EMP wave. I'm sick of all your smoke superior. And Steel's just like, okay, presses a button. And Triumph goes down. Yeah, I do. I do like this. It's like the... He's like a wild bull at this point. Mm. Like, he's astonishingly powerful. They know they've got him on the ropes, but, like, you know, it's like the desperation of, look, okay, he's still insanely dangerous, but you can stand down or we'll we'll blow you the hell up, basically. Like, I, I do love this. Yeah, yeah. And he's basically been smashed into a wall. He comes back out of that, the hole he's made in the wall. His, his, his costume's in, in tatters. He's, he's on fire. There's smoke coming off him. And he tries saying the magic word, so cool. But it's not working. His genie's not there anymore. And then Our Man appears in front of him. Yeah, and Our Man, bless him, has not uh, been able to do much for this story. Um, mostly because being near Triumph... Because Triumph got so kind of twisted up and around in time that he shouldn't really exist anymore... And apparently uh, being near him just blinds our man. He can't see time anymore. Uh, and I like this. He just goes, um, you know, it's all fallen apart, uh, Billy McIntyre. Uh, in the end, 
You are simply the pawn of forces beyond time, beyond your understanding. You must run. I can't protect you. I'm time blind. I'm trying, but run. And Triumph doesn't understand and seems to have this epiphany as well at this point. He, he says, oh, what happened to me? What, what was I thinking? I just seemed to go the wrong way. I could have joined any time I wanted. And he does a little laugh and then just looks up and says, do you think if I go back in there and just say I'm real sorry? As the spectre materialises behind him. Yes, and again, uh, the spectre is Gog's wrath, certainly not Gog's forgiveness. And uh, he has a poetic bent because he turns he turns triumph into ice, basically. Mm. Yep, just a solid statue of ice. And I will say it's that moment, that is the moment where I feel a little bit sorry for Triumph because at that moment he's realised what he's become and what he should have done. And then you're like, yeah, I, I could feel sorrier for him. <laughs> There's an element of you've made your bed, you lie in it. But that moment where he realizes what's happened, I think, is 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 really nicely done. Yeah, and I I do get a degree of pity for him here. I I, I think on some level, he was maybe manipulated by by looks, or or maybe yeah. it's more like the the power was like a kind of drug. Like it it could have been argued. Maybe if he'd had a really good lawyer, it could be argued that like he wasn't in sound mind while this was happening. Uh, so I, I I do feel a little sad for him because he had he had a lot of bad luck, but but also, you know, when push came to shove, he was willing to hurt people to get what he wanted. Yeah. So I think that betrays a lot. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. But the spectre's not done. <laughs> now triumph's been turned into ice. The spectre says all crimes must be paid. There is no land beyond the vengeance of the voice. As he materialises, a massive gnarly warhammer <laughs> raises it above his head preparing to shatter Triumph into pieces. But because, then Zauriel comes between. Because what's the point of being nearly omnipotent if you're not going to do it with a degree of artistry? I know, yeah. It's a cool hammer. And <laughs> he could have just obliterated Triumph. It didn't have to turn him into ice and then create a hammer so he could break him. <laughs> but Zauriel's not going to let that happen. He comes between them, spreads his wing and shouts for the spectre to stand away. There's a bit of an argument between the two here as well. <laughs> they both both got the same boss, but they work in different parts of the building. I like this a lot, actually. Yeah. Uh, it, it says so much about Zauriel and just his own kind of sense of morality. Um, because like they can't save Triumph, but he's not going to let him kind of just smash him into a million pieces. And um, yeah, and 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 this is the spectre for crying out loud, like. I, the 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 steel on uh, on Zauriel to kind of just stand in his way, like yeah. it's it's great. Yeah, yeah. And the spectre says, "You have no authority. You freed me from the rock, and I have come here to fulfill my appointed duty." And and Zauriel responds with, "Look, we helped. We freed you to help protect the Earth from a higher reality. This isn't how you protect us." And basically says, "Look, I don't care what you blame him for." Are you going to kill me to get to him? <laughs> and then, and again, brilliant moment. Superman and Sentinel walk up and, and Superman just says, Spectre, thank you for your help. You can leave now. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, and, and uh, the Spectre basically says, hey, you're breaching protocol here. This will not go well for you in the Court of Light. And Zaro just goes, don't dare threaten me. 
And then uh, the Spectre disappears. <laughs> yeah. And Sentinel just says, oh, I liked him better when Jim Corrigan was part of the equation. And I also like that Superman just goes, Zariel, well done. But also Zariel's body language, like he was stood firm, puffed up against the Spectre. And then in this panel, he's sort of like, oh, God, oh, dear. <laughs> I just stood up to the Spectre. He slumped over. He's like breathing out. It's It's brilliant. Well, I love how, again, you can infer so much about all their personalities and their professional relationship without having to spell it out. Yeah. Like, at no point does Superman have to go like, oh my God, Zariel, why did you do that? Or, it was good of you to save his life. He just goes, well done. Yeah. Because it's the right thing to do. You yeah. know, I love that. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. But then he says there is some bad news from Keystone City. So we cut to Keystone. All the leaguers who were on the Watchtower have now beamed down captain marvel's there as well steel's got a new set of armor uh they are gathered around the body of wildcat yeah and uh the city is still in a in a in a really terrible state and it's raining and uh yeah jay's it's 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 a moment of mourning and jay's just like oh oh god you know i've we've lost so many people over the years there's so few of us left now and uh, yeah, he says like Ted Ted Grant was supposed to live forever. Yep, yep. And the Thunderbolt says to JJ, "Oh, look, I think I'll stick around and help you do something for all the people who've been hurt here." But JJ's sort of fixated on Wildcat. He knows Wildcat sacrificed himself for him, and he's like, "What? What am I going to do now?" And then Jay Garrick, the Flash, the original, he's like, "Oh, somebody needs to say something. I don't know what." what we're going to say and Huntress is like please don't be dead and then Wildcat wakes up <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, he's alive everybody um, and uh, everyone's like what the hell <laughs> and uh, yeah it turns out he's got nine lives <laughs> yeah just casually drops it in yeah I got nine lives Afterlife has a cat flap. You know, it had to come out sooner or later. And Sentinel just says, since when? <laughs> Wildcat says, well, since 1945. But, you know, got to keep some of my advantages quiet. Come on. Do I look 70? You think this is diet and exercise? Yeah. It's, so, again, uh, Sent Sentinel had, you know, some kind of years stripped from him at some point. Jay's got the speed force, which gives him longevity. Mm. And, uh, yeah, Wildcat is just... It's just Wildcat. And uh, again, apparently like good diet and exercise. Oh, no, wait. No, he has nine lives, apparently. <laughs> but I love how essentially Morrison's just dropped a bombshell on the Wildcat mythology in the most casual way they possibly could. Yeah. Um, I kind of like how it has absolutely no explanation. I, I imagine like maybe some writer's team picked that up at a later point and actually, you know, tried to explain what the hell was going on there. But hey, he's lived a long life. I mean, for many reasons, you know, even without nine lives. He's like, yeah, look, 1945, I've had a big career. I don't know what to tell you. you know? <laughs> yeah. Look, we've all gone to an alternate universe at some point. Like, you know, stuff happens. Yep. And then the Thunderbolt goes up to JG and says, hey, now we can hang out and do crazy stuff. And Sentinel says, no, nobody's going to have that kind of power unsupervised. And JG says, unsupervised? I'm joining Wildcat's team. And Sentinel's like... What team? <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it's interesting. Like, since kind of merging, uh, the Thunderbolt seems very 
Uh, it seems quite different. Seems quite kind of again cartoony. Seems like a kind of um, wacky best friend kind of thing. Yeah, and I feel like there's more mischief to it than Johnny Thunder's Thunderbolt had. Mm, yeah, kind of like um, I can see I can see him and JJ getting on very well. Yeah. Do you, do you know if because obviously I think obviously JJ went on to be a member of the JSA. Yeah. But did um did uh, did the Thunderbolt stay as purple? I think so. I think so. I, I'd need to go back and read JSA. It's been a while, but I, I think it did. Yeah, I was just thinking because I know like the pink Thunderbolt is such like a kind of iconic look. I mean, obviously it makes sense for him to stay as purple, but um, yeah, just find out curious. <laughs> yep. And Superman says, uh, if JJ's serious about his new career, I can't think of any finer mentors. And Wildcat says, don't look at me. Garrick's the one with time on his hands. And Jay says, basically, hey, let's reform the JSA. And I have to assume, PJ, that this is where it all began. I mean, again, because there was quite a long-running JSA series throughout the early 2000s. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it started a, a month or two after this story. Did At what point did Captain Marvel become a regular member of the JSA? Or was, it, or was he never really a regular member? I'm not sure. I really... I've only read that series once and it was around it was when it was coming out basically and I my memories of it are fuzzy at best if I'm being honest. There's that one I think we've brought this up before but there's a JSA JLA crossover isn't there from yes. around that era. That had uh, Despero and Johnny Sorrow as the villains? Yes, yeah, there was. And again Johnny Sorrow Coolest looking villain. He's, <laughs> don't know anything about him other than he looks amazing. <laughs> I quite like Despero's look as well. I mean, it's got that big fin on his head and that third eye. Do you know what's weird? I have never read uh, a JLA story featuring Despero. I, I, there's one that springs to my mind, which is like issue seven or eight of Young Justice, where the JLA, when Young Justice starts, the JLA don't know they're hanging out. <laughs> As a team, they're sort of unapproved, and then the JLA find out at the end of one issue, and the next issue is them testing Young Justice. Right. But essentially, during the test, Despero appears and takes control of the Martian Manhunter, and Young Justice have to fight Jean. Wow. And uh, yeah, it's a really fun issue, actually, really, really good. But that's that's the main story I th- I can think of that I've read with Despero in it as as a main villain. Because in some circles, it's said that like Despero is the greatest villain of the JLA. I wouldn't go that far. No. Yeah, it's weird. I just, I'm surprised he hasn't popped up more often, given if that is the case. because he, he has just shown up on the live-action Flash TV series. The latest really? season. Season 8 has just started over here in the UK, uh, and it's called The Flash Armageddon. They've given it a subtitle. And Despero has showed up in the first, season, first episode, played by Tony Curran, who's a... Uh, British actor who played Vincent van Gogh in Doctor Who. And, oh, my God. Uh, oh, my God. And was like an Irish mobster in Daredevil season two as well. And what is he like? Is he is he pink, you know, pink with a fin on his head and a third eye? So he's most of the time he's a normal looking human dude with a red mohawk. But then sometimes he grows into the big pink alien with the fin and the third eye. OK, then. Wow. I need to I think I need to do my Despero research. See what all the fuss is about. <laughs> Uh, but PJ, it's time for a good old-fashioned uh, JLA epilogue, even though it isn't really described as such. Yeah, it is, isn't it? We cut back to the Watch Hour where Watch Hour, Watch Tower, where Plastic Man and Zauriella are together, and uh, 
Plastic Man's opening line is again brilliant. He says, no hard feelings, Bill, says Superman, and he shakes Marvel's hand. I'm never going to be that kind of a good guy, am I? Yeah, I, I, I love that. I, I also love the weird little bromance between Zariel and Plastic Man that has just developed in the background. Um, I have to assume it's because Zariel never sleeps and Plastic Man is just weird and <laughs> hangs, out around, hangs here a lot because he's got nowhere else to go. Yeah, yeah, but Zariel... Yeah. Zariel points out that Plastic Man missed most of the action and Plastic Man tells us, yep, until the two flashes gave me a molecular rubdown, turned me into molten lava, but my molecules were mine again. Yeah, and again, even being turned to stone can't really, you know, can't really damp his style. And as much as Plastic Man would say like, oh, clearly I'll never be as good as Superman, you know, Superman's just to the core a decent guy. Plastic Man you know, tried, threw himself in in front of a fifth-dimensional genie, got turned to stone, mm. has been turned back, and is still okay with it. You know, and is still like, hey, I'm back. You know, I think he does himself a disservice sometimes. Yeah, I think so too. I agree. I think he's more heroic than he thinks he is. But then hey, he the asks... PJ, Excel, the Excel, Excel, yeah, yeah, it's our favourite people. Our favourite people are back. <laughs> the quintessence are watching them as Plastic Man says, who's the popsicle and what flavour would he be if I licked him? <laughs> and Zario just says, look, I never knew him, but apparently he's a hero who fell. Someone said his name was William. And as the quintessence look on, and I believe Zeus says, let the curtain fall. Yeah, that's Zeus. We turn the page and we get a glorious splash page of an item in the JLA trophy room, which is the frozen statue of Triumph. <laughs> yeah, they've just kept him there. And he's got a, a plaque on the at the bottom of the case that says Triumph, founding member of the JLA, maintained at 60 degrees below zero. And yeah, that's the which end. Yeah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I assume... You know, couldn't quite bring themselves to just let him melt. It's very nice of them to just keep him around. Yeah. I want to know, because there comes a time... The JLA are on the Watchtower, I think, until basically the end of this series uh, of JLA, around the time of Infinite Crisis, I think, is where it JLA then reboots as Justice League of America again with a new issue one. In that issue one, they're back in the Hall of Justice, and there's never any mention of Triumph. Yeah... They never really bother. They never really return to the Watchtower. I mean, to be honest, beyond that, we start to get like you know company-wide reboots and like the the New Fifty Two and everything. Did they were the was the New Fifty Two incarnation of the Justice League in the Watchtower? I think they're in the Hall of Justice as well. To be honest, yeah, yeah, and I you know. know- I like the Hall of Justice. It's classic, iconic. But come on, a Watchtower on the moon—that's so much cooler. Well, then, of course, in the TV series, uh, sorry, the cartoon, uh, they had a watchtower, but it was a it was a satellite, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I think then it sort of becomes several satellites in the fourth and fifth series where it's JLA, Justice League Unlimited, where it's like a much bigger thing and you've got a lot more members. Mm. Yeah, it's it's weird. I, I guess it's, it's just indicative of the, of the era in which I kind of fell in love with the JLA. But to me... Having a tower on the moon is is just the best base you could have. Like, yeah, uh, and 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 it's a, it's a very iconic looking design. Like it's quite understated, but I think very effective. Like the kind of triangular tower 
and the little dome at the base. Yeah. I like yeah. it a lot. Because the design does change during Mark Wade's run and then is the design that stays to the end of the series. But I, I, I think I prefer the classic Morrison Porter design. Well, I, I also liked it when there's like a few people kind of like uh, bumbling about, you know, in the place when, you know, in, in this era when we had like 14 members of the league, mm. basically. I think um, I can see maybe like when the team got kind of cold down a bit that like, I don't know, maybe the rent got a bit much. <laughs> I don't know how much a, a plot on the moon costs these days. The um, PJ, PJ, we we finished Crisis Times Five in four parts. Uh, yeah, what are your thoughts? I love it. It's it's brilliant. It's so weird. It's one of the weirdest stories in the run. I'd forgotten how weird it is, if I'm being honest. But I love that weirdness. I think all the fifth dimensional stuff, bringing Quisp back as as this malevolent all-powerful entity throwing captain marvel into the mix and the jsa it's it's it just ticks all the boxes for me well yeah because who on earth on the planet in 1999 was thinking about quisp yeah no one except morrison yeah like and and it's funny isn't it because you know i i'm starting to see I, i i know um I think Morrison themselves said at some point that they'd got this kind of reputation for being the Silver Age guy, you know, hmm. uh, for, for kind of referencing all this old stuff. But I always thought of like, I always thought of Morrison's JLA as being very, very modern. I think it still feels surprisingly modern, even though it's now over 20 years old. But it's actually interesting how it's also very... I, the word I want to say is silly, but that's the wrong word, if you know what I mean. Like, I, yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. I, I think Quisp is one of the most successful versions of Morrison doing this, taking a silly Silver Age concept and modernizing it, working it into post-crisis continuity in a way that makes sense and works and updating it. I, I would genuinely put this above a lot of the stuff they did on their Batman run in terms mm. of that, some of which I did really enjoy, but I think Quisp is my favourite example of it. I think it's it's superb because it's so silly. I think what I like about this series, and I think it's it, it's uh, embodied perfectly in this four-parter, is it's a very sophisticated approach to telling a story. The dialogue feels very fresh. The way the characters talk, the way the action is portrayed feels very, again, lack of a better word, modern. Mm. But it's never ashamed to be a comic book. Yes. And to do, like, as we were joking about, like trying to recap the plot, you go like, oh yeah, you know, Morrison's JLA, that's when it got serious and real and adult kind of storytelling and then we have this wacky story (laughs) about like fifth dimensional imps and warring colors and it's it's so gloriously comic booky and it's silly but it's never disrespectful and like it's kind of it's it's colorful but it's never just meaningless nonsense like it it it, it strikes such a wonderful tone it's very hard to replicate 
I think if if you asked someone which era do you think is the story where Captain Marvel saved the day by skywriting came from, you'd say it was the thirties or forties. <laughs> oh, for crying yes, for crying out loud, like and you know, where we, we have two fifth dimensional living colours holding planets in their hands and the final battle is solved not by punching them but as you say pj by skywriting a magic word that combines them yeah it's so refreshing where it's one thing to have like a really big interesting threat it's another thing to find a really creative way of solving it yeah um i don't know and i i this is yeah i wish more superhero encounters ended like this with something really interesting with characters using their brains not necessarily just blowing the hell out of each other i can't really think of another writer working at that time who would have done that no that's a very uniquely morrison thing to have done and it's all the better for it Oh, 100%. Like, is even the, I mean, a contemporary of this might be, say, uh, the authority over at Wildstorm, which, of course, was being this very, um, very, quote-unquote, real, uh, kind of paving the way for what we'd eventually see in, like, the Ultimates, you know, branching military with uh, superheroes and modern technology. And, and yeah, there was some creative stuff in there, but it... it did generally end with with people with with our heroes just kind of murdering the enemies yeah you know and again there's some fun stuff i i definitely liked it it was it was a series that i really enjoyed but like again i don't know the idea that something because something's real it can only be solved through vi- it can uh, a conflict can only be resolved through violence does that make sense yeah 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 it does it does and yeah, what a story. The other thing with this story now is it really feels like a turning point because we are we basically have a couple of interludes and then we're on to the main event, the end. And it kind of makes me sad. It definitely feels like it's downhill to the ending now. And I'm very excited to get onto World War Three just yep. because of how much that story means to me personally. But in my head, I almost feel like there should have been an additional volume. Does that make sense? Like yeah, I feel the like, series was hitting its strides so well. Like an epilogue, almost. Well, yeah, or, or I don't know, or because uh, we, because again, like with strength in numbers and now justice for all, they're just like two very thick collected editions with with just the JLA going on all manner of wild adventures. Yeah, and part of me never wanted that to end in a way like i i would almost love to see like another six issues before world war three of just for jla having more insane adventures and and then then we'll do the big apocalyptic stuff but yeah that would be nice actually it is is funny like i know earlier in our in the series when you and i were talking about it i remember saying that like i feel there's a parallel universe where the JLA of New World Order and American Dreams carried on for a few more books, but they just kept the the core seven kept having adventures. Yeah, and then, and then of course the series changes dramatically, and we have like fourteen regular cast members, and things get very 
big and sprawling and, and wonderful. Um, but, it's, you know, it's interesting. I've got um, some other JLA collected editions from later in the series where the team does go back down to the Magnificent Seven. Mm. And I find myself missing, you know, all these weird and eclectic supporting characters, basically. I still kind of miss Green Arrow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Give me more Connor. Poor Connor. <laughs> I always enjoyed this four parker. Yes. But I don't think I've really given it the credit it deserves until until we've done this recap here. Same. I think diving into it as deeply as we have has just made me appreciate it even more. Agreed. And when you can when you compare it with and you know how hard well, you know how hard our how hard it was to recap because there's like 101 things happening. Yeah. The story has no right to be as coherent and tight as it is, you know, and to have so many good character moments in it. Like, it's, it works really well. It's certainly more coherent than my recap of it was. It's <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, uh, partner it with um, One Million, mm. which I know we rag on a bit, but, you know, there's there's a series which is giving us 101 ideas at once, just like this story. And, yeah, I think, I think it works so much better here. Yeah, I, One Million... They struggled to get all the ideas they were trying to get into it and have it be a narrative that worked and made sense. Don't get me wrong, there's some brilliant moments in it, some lovely character stuff. There's That ending is still amazing. Mm. Oh, my knife, yeah. But, yeah, I, there was one million was too much. This is a gem, this little four-part story here of some crazy ideas, but it's paced really well. The characters are all clearly defined and... and and all there for a reason. And oh yes, yeah. No, now that is that's a million dollar statement. Every character has a reason to be here, yes. which I love. And it's not about you know. And again, people overuse Batman. It's very hard not to, of course. You know, it's Batman. Why wouldn't you? But I love how in a four part story, Batman is very is in it only minimally, but every panel he's in totally justifies his presence yeah it's quality not quantity you know steel only really turns up for two pages in this story but you know what an impact yeah it's tremendous yeah like everyone has something to do nobody feels shortchanged, even if they're only in it for a few panels but that's it and because there's so many moving parts to the story but morrison's able to take some off the board like plastic man he's like right plastic man's done his bit in the story he's out now but we're bringing batman and aquaman into it at this point as well um yeah it's it all it all just works well together everything fits i aspire to be as good as morrison is at writing a big team book yeah like it's a skill and i will continue trying but like i yeah it's funny how much this series kind of imprinted on my brain and having like (laughs) a large cask of characters because it's amazing how they all get their moment in the sun yeah and that is really admirable it really is it really is oh god it's good well 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 pj as we said turning point for the series but i guess before we address the future and what's to come uh, we've actually had some amazing letters from listeners, which we, we really address. have. We really have. These these are great. I love these emails. Now, I wonder if we should look at a wonderful letter we've received from friend of the show, Andy Turner. Um, 
because uh, th- then I think that will lead quite nicely into our other letter. Yes. But Andy Conduit-Turner here, um, again, who, lovely, lovely chap, Andy. Um, I had the pleasure of knowing him from conventions for several, several years mm. now. And he's written in to draw our attention to the video game series of Injustice. Yes. We may have ragged on it a little bit a few episodes ago. <laughs> well, like... Well, no, last episode, in fact. Well, like all uh, kind of uh, opinions with no evidence to back them up, it's always best if you share them in a really public <laughs> forum. So, for context, uh, the Injustice games uh, feature... Well, it's essentially a beat-em-up series featuring DC characters, but yep. it's in an alternate version of the DC universe where Superman has gone over to the dark side. He's gone yeah. bad, basically. Yeah. And um, we, I think, were just l- lamenting the fact that there was yet another scenario in which Superman was evil, basically. Yes. And Andy has uh, written in with a, a very uh, a very thoughtful and genuinely appreciated take on the Injustice series. So, um, Andy writes, thanks to an entirely misspent youth and perhaps unreasonable amount of time for the story in fighting games. Just going to interject here. Been there. I could probably quote the mythology of most Street Fighter characters in granular detail now. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's stupid the lengths you go to sometimes to learn stories in games about punching each other. But isn't the issue with like the Street Fighter... And again, this is I'm, I'm willing to learn here. The issue with Street Fighter games is that, of course... The person who wins the game is whoever you're playing as, if you're good enough. But then there's an there's a canonical winner. There's an official game. canon, yeah. And right. <laughs> they sort of try and incorporate as many of the endings as they can into it. And in fact, Street Fighter Four made an effort to if you could string all the endings together as one movie, but you had to sort of win them in the right order, as it were. It's it's a whole thing. Right. Okay. So, uh, so Andy, uh, kind of uh, in a, a lovely summary of the Injustice storyline, says, "Very uh, Injustice does indeed take place in a world where Superman is a baddie. Uh, so basically five years before the game begins, Superman kills the Joker after the Joker tricks Superman into inadvertently killing Lois Lane and his unborn child and also nuking Metropolis. Okay. So, again... Um, Thanks, Joker. Uh, again, a bit like Kingdom Come. Kingdom, yeah, I was said. thinking the same. Yeah. Yeah. So over the following five years, the JLA community is divided into factions with a number of interesting choices of alignments made. However, our actual protagonists of the game are several members of our own quote-unquote normal JLA, so from our universe, pulled into this grim and dark world. I did not know that. Me neither. Okay. So a bit of a spoiler here. He says, mm-hmm. The, uh, so, spoiler warning, everyone. Uh, turn off if you want to play these games. But he says, The ultimate resolution comes when clever old Batman is able to restore portal technology to bring our Superman, a.k.a. True Blue Superman, <laughs> into this dark universe. So, this allows the story to address PJ's heartache <laughs> by actually pitting a dark Superman against the True Blue. And we all know who wins. Electric Superman. Yeah, and and the, and the third contender. <laughs> if you told me you could play as Electric Blue Superman in the Injustice games, 
I we wouldn't be talking PJ. No, we'd, like, be, already, we'd be playing that game right now. I'd, yes, I'd be already running to game my local le- electronic boutique to buy it. <laughs> um, so yeah, so apparently um, there is obviously there's a comic series which uh, fills in the five years between the Joker's attack and the events of the game. And you kind of, in Andy's, Andy, as Andy's take on it is, you get a, a fairly good exploration of Superman descending into villainy and becoming like a despot. Um, da, 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 uh, yeah, we get some emotional moments with Ma and Pa Kent. Uh, and the Guardians issue a warrant for Superman's arrest. I have to assume that's um, the um, the Lantern Yeah, Guardians. I have assumed the same. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, so, and again, it, and as for Injustice 2, it's a sequel which continues in the world of the original, so we lose some of the nuance and uh, is more in the camp of Superman being bad. And also Brainiac is involved. Um, but he was happy to let it go because he felt the series had built up some good will. Uh, so yeah, he says, I can happily share that I have probably slurped more fun and emotional responses to storytelling from the cutscenes of this game than any IMAX released four-hour cut of the League's <laughs> grimmest cinematic <laughs> adventure. Yep. So there we go. Perhaps I've persuaded you to give Injustice another look as a decent bit of JLA storytelling in a different format. Perhaps I've also spoiled it enough now that you don't need to bother. Well, thank you, Andy. Uh, that is delightful. Do you know what? that has made me want to check out the game because I didn't know any of that, that it was the, the DCU versions of the heroes mo- ported over to that dimension to fight an evil Superman. And that does make it more interesting to me. I, I wonder if that's a failing on the part of the, uh, I don't know which company published it. I think it's the same people as Mortal Kombat, isn't it? It's a mid- midway, I think. Yeah, Maybe because they didn't advertise it properly. Because <laughs> they did a, um, they did a, um, didn't they do a Mortal Kombat versus dc yeah before injustice yeah that's probably where they got the they got the the kind of licensing deal basically yeah yeah isn't there also in the context of the injustice games a MacGuffin where there is a drug which gives people superpowers i don't know which is the in i could have got this completely wrong so i apologize andy and and anyone else listening but that is the in-universe explanation for why batman can punch superman in the context of a beat up basically. Yeah, <laughs> you'd need something, wouldn't you? Yeah, because a ton of the uh, a ton of the uh, kind of lesser powered heroes have taken this drug, so they can stand toe to toe with the the well, the Superman of the world, basically. Yeah, yeah, but no, I I um am now fully invested and want to check out Injustice. I can admit when I'm wrong. Hey, at the very least, beat 'em up games. That's fun. fun. Yeah, it's fun. And uh, a a game that can give you a kind of cinematic uh, super move, I'm a big fan of. Yeah. I, I think there are some... There, I've seen a couple of montages on YouTube of, like, all the finisher moves. You know, and you've got <laughs> stuff like, oh, I don't know, uh, Superman picking up a character, smashing them through the core of planet Earth, and then back out again the other side. That sounds fun. That's fun. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, would you like to hear our second letter, Pete? Well, well let's I'm do be, it. I be, I'm, you've read this. I know you've read this, but you know, <laughs> let's keep the illusion up for the listeners. So we have had a, an amazing letter come in from Christopher Monica Murphy, which uh, touches upon the fifth dimension, which, of course, we've spent a lot of time in, and what it might mean uh, to Morrison in the context of the DC universe. 
As well as elaborating on one panel we talked about from the third chapter, where Captain Marvel sort of makes himself solid in the fifth dimension. Yeah, now this is this is wild because I think on some level I was aware of some of these points because I've actually read all of the stories that Chris is referencing here, which is rare for me. <laughs> but it's interesting to hear someone lay them all out in order because yeah. it suddenly starts to think that maybe there is method to this madness, basically. Uh, so, yeah, so again, as of this issue, uh, we know that Captain Marvel observes that the fifth-dimensional engines seem to run on pure imagination. Uh, and Clue 2 pops up nine year, only nine years later, good God, in Batman 680, where we have the Batman of Zurinar from Morrison's run, <laughs> Yep. Where having come under mental attack, uh, Batman has developed a backup personality and is guided by Batmite, who uh, is might be a hallucination, might actually be a fifth dimensional ape. Uh, ape, sorry, imp. I don't know. An ape would have made it fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and Batman asks, are you really an alien hyper imp from a fifth dimension or just a figment of my imagination? To which Batmite responds, imagination is the fifth dimension. Now, yep. should we take a moment to, to kind of digest these words? Because words have power. We know that because they mixed a word and made a new genie. That is true. That is true. And I've, I'd always read it as when they go to the fifth dimension, and I don't know, when Batman later meets Batmite and, ever, and everything, when characters say things like, oh, the fifth dimension appears, appears to run on pure imagination... Or the fifth dimension is imagination. I thought that was them saying like, oh, it's just like anything can happen here. Anything's possible. Yeah. I never read it as until this moment that literally, literally Morrison considers the fifth dimension to be imagination. Yeah, neither had I. And that is a wild take that I utterly love. It kind of makes a terrible sense, doesn't it? Does. It? <laughs> it really does. <laughs> yeah, like, and I'm also thinking of other moments now where, like, um, in All Star Superman, when Lex Luthor gains Superman's powers, sorry, spoilers, mm. everyone, and with Superman's hyper senses, can now see the underlying quantum mechanics that drive the universe and has this incredible kind of revelation where he realizes that the fundamental forces are yoked by thought alone mm-hmm. so it kind of there's a morrison mindset here which suggests that creativity and imagination might actually be a fundamental force of the universe yeah <laughs> or at least you know the fictional universes of the dc it's amazing it re- <laughs> it's amazing how everything Morrison has done is connected in the tiniest ways as well as as the obvious larger ones. Well, another really cool thing here is we cut to uh, Chris has also referenced multiversity, another one I've read, uh, which has a lot of Morrison's kind of wilder ideas. But you have the various heroes from across multiple universes who are brought together. And Captain Carrot, who's a 
who's a rabbit superhero, <laughs> tells Superman of Earth-23 that the House of Heroes, which is a which is a house, a building outside of the universes, is rotating through the fifth dimension around a fixed point in the structure of the multiversal orrery of worlds. That's a sentence. Which is pure... (laughs) Again, now, again, imagination as a physical dimension you can move through would be a pretty good way of describing moving between fictional universes. Mm. And we also have a wonderful captain marvel story within the pages of multiversity where we learn that the rock of eternity is poised at the dazzling crystalline pinnacle of imagination's loftiest imperium peaks and finally the final clue here in chris's kind of um i imagine he's got a wall with bits of paper and red thread linking everything (laughs) i hope Uh, so it basically says in the map of the multiverse which uh, came out in March 2015. Uh, And I know Andy will appreciate this because we've talked about this in the past. Um, Right in the centre of the multiverse and all aspects of creation, in the centre, you've got the Rock of Eternity. At the outer limit, you've got the Speed Force and Wonder World. Right in the centre are the House of Heroes and the Rock of Eternity. And so, listeners, Chris's masterpiece here is that the source of Captain Marvel's powers, the Rock of Eternity, are literally in the centre of imagination. So the, this explains why Captain Marvel can function so well in the fifth dimension. And this kind of makes a wonderful sense because mm. it's magic. Like literally, Captain Marvel's powers come from magic. It doesn't need any explanation. And magic could also just be described as pure imagination, essentially. It's kind of genius. It's it's so good. I I love this this map that Chris has put together for us here of it all. And with many other writers, you could maybe say this was an accident. This was just coincidence. But I think Morrison has demonstrated that they are so aware of their previous work and that everything is is linked. Like and Numerous writers I can think of who, when even when they're writing within the same series, they have to go back and go, wait, what have I written? What have I done? I need to check up on this. And and sometimes accidentally contradict themselves. You know, it happens all the time in, in comics, TV, everything. Morrison has that awareness of everything they've written, like on a really, really specific level that... I can't think of anything but this was like one panel of Crisis Times 5 that they've then spent the next 20 years explaining away and the rest of their work, you know? <laughs> it's always been there in the back of their mind. Well, what what other creators can, can operate in this manner? As, as we said, like Morrison, regardless of, um, oh, you know, uh, uh, continuity changes and soft universal reboots, Morrison seems to have the complete freedom to build their own continuity across whatever series they just happen to be working on right now. Yeah. Like, I mean, for crying out loud, um, uh, Seven Soldiers of Victory picks up a storyline that Morrison began in... um, in uh, JLA Classified, with the... uh, which we will cover in time. Yep. With um, the Ultramarines again. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that they are doing that and that you wouldn't notice it. 
unless you studied Morrison's work, properly studied it, as I'm assuming Chris has, and you know, if you haven't, Chris, and you just pick this up on first read every time, then then my hat <laughs> is off to you, sir. But yeah, the, the the fact that Morrison does this builds the layers in and things that will pay off in something completely different a few years down the line. It's crazy and it's brilliant and I love it. And also, I mean, you know, Morrison being a self-proclaimed chaos magician, like this is a creator who let's let's just say appreciates symbolism. <laughs> you know, like everything has a double meaning. And yeah, like I I mean, it's really just their universe and we get to live in it, really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I should also say that um uh, if that weren't enough, Chris um, goes on to excel, uh, exceed themselves by uh, some. I, I don't know how you keep this in your brain, Chris. It's incredible. Um, brings in an earlier DC reference to the fifth dimension, which comes from Wonder Woman issue four, May 1943. That's insane. But obviously, Morrison knew this was there. Obviously. Of course. I mean, I, I mean, two years before uh, Wildcat gained nine, nine lives, <laughs> uh, where basically, and, and he sent his scanned panels where there is a brief reference to the Amazons um, using a, a machine to read someone's mind because, and I quote, the subconscious is in the fifth dimension. These kappa rays make it visible. Wow. I mean, there we go. What what more can you say about that, really, other than, good God? <laughs> I d- yeah. I again, I just, I'm impressed. I'm impressed with Morrison. Yeah. I'm impressed with the entire creative team. I'm impressed that Chris not only discovered this stuff and then somehow remembered it. Yeah. No. Like, same. Um, it really kind of just puts our comparison, our our, our achievements to shame, PJ. Yeah, Chris, why aren't you presenting this podcast? <laughs> where are we yeah, putting we, the work in? <laughs> well, we'll 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 arrange some kind of dead drop where we'll 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 hand over the keys to the podcast and just admit that we're outclassed. <laughs> no, uh, thank you both to to Chris and to Andy for your emails. I I absolutely loved reading both of those. I, I, it's just. I love finding things out about stories that I didn't know or, or finding new stories that make me want to read or, or play or watch something new. It just, I love it. Um, seeing other people's passions for those stories as well is a genuine thrill to me. So yeah, thank you both for writing to us and taking the time to do that. I, I, I hugely appreciate it. I love it. No, massively. And it, it, it genuinely... I mean, it genuinely means a lot that anyone would take the time to write in, even just to say, I don't like what you're doing. I hate you. So <laughs> the fact that you're writing and saying positive things is is doubly nice. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, PJ, I mean, a bumper episode for a bumper story. Have we have we said everything that needs to be said at this point? Um, I think without our brains melting, yeah. I'm amazed. I'm amazed. I've lasted this long, to be honest. I was feeling exhausted <laughs> at the start, but now I, I feel invigorated. Oh, you could go for a run. I did a run this morning, actually. I think that's probably that's probably enough. Oh, go for another one, John. What do I have to think of everything? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, sir. I'm sorry, PJ. <laughs> um, well, as as we finish, kind of one big story, and uh, you know, with 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 a couple of very fun kind of standalone stories ahead of us. Mm. Um, 
a world of possibility, a world of imagination. Uh, I should give a big shout out to Grant, Mor- uh, Grant Morrison. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's I'll give, give a, a big shout out to Grant Morrison. Let's do it. My, my brain's pouring out my ears. I'll give a big shout out to Gav Mitchell for drawing our amazing cover artwork. And uh, I'll give a shout out to Elliot Red for composing and performing our theme tune, Justice. And if you enjoy hearing PJ and I ramble, you can find us on social media as well. Our details and a link to a couple of our other projects are in the description of this episode. So click those links. Click those links. PJ's got a great podcast you should be listening to. I I do. And we are just about to record the final episode of of our second season tomorrow as we record this. So it's a great time to jump on board. Never, never been a better time to get involved. <laughs> um, and uh, PJ, if we've we've said so many words, and our listeners have said so many words, uh, if it's time to call it a day, could you please see us off in your own unique fashion? Words, but fewer of them.